Welcome to Future Ed, the show that explores the future of education. I'm your host, Peter Croft. Our guest on this episode is Joe Bellsterling. Joe is founder of Major Clarity. Major Clarity is a web-based interactive platform which helps students discover their future careers and the paths to make them a reality. In this episode, Joe explains how a unique opportunity at college led him to expose a huge gap in the support young people get in their career exploration. Joe discusses the mission of Major Clarity and why it is being adopted by hundreds of school districts around the US. Joe explains why engagement is so important and how their setup enables pupils to be effective in their progress. He explains what is missing in the space, what trends they are seeing in the career choice of young people, the possible changes that are coming in terms of credentials, and where he sees education going in the future. Joe gives a few ideas for education entrepreneurs looking to start businesses and the education business he would set up if he were to start another company. Joe has found a niche in the education space. His company is helping millions of young people figure out where they might be suited in the world of work. The deep engagement he has had in the space has enabled him to see a lot of opportunities as well as problems. We hope you enjoy hearing Joe's insights. Joe Bell Sterling, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Peter. I'm uh, really happy to join in and thanks for having me. What is Major Clarity? What is its mission and how did it come about? So Major Clarity serves to really help K-12 schools ensure that every student's education leads to a successful career outcome. And I kind of got started in this whole world because I went to college and my freshman year, I realized that the classroom really wasn't the right situation for me. And I really wanted to get my hands dirty. Uh, but at the same time, I didn't want to drop out of college and didn't really know that was a viable pathway at the time, uh, coming from a family that had a high emphasis on education, and rightfully so. But I was fortunate to be able to convince my administration to exempt me from my freshman requirements. And so my freshman year, I actually ended up moving to DC and working for the Senate Finance Committee, because I thought I really wanted to pursue a career in government. And I loved the experience, but quickly realized that it wasn't exactly what I really wanted to do long term. And long story short, I ended up uh, going back to school, but also getting jobs and stints in business development for a startup, in finance, in a work that paralleled social work. And ultimately, from all of those experiences, I realized I still had no idea what I wanted to do, but it was really hard to test drive out career pathways. And when I was buying my first car, I got free, easy test drives. When I was picking a college, I got to show up on campus for free, easy test drives. When I was renting an apartment in DC, again, free, easy test drives. But with my career, I had to choose a major, pay for a year of school, if I was lucky, get an internship, and then decide if I wanted to keep doing that or start all over. And so I became really intrigued with this concept of how do we backwards map academic planning and how do we lower the opportunity cost of test driving career pathways in college majors so students can make decisions more efficiently and have a better understanding of what's out there? Um, and I ended up going through a lot of iterations and doing a lot of work that ultimately led to the creation of Major Clarity. And what we do now is offer a career exploration platform that has interactive video questions with professionals and interactive career simulation activities and integrates with K through 12 school systems to help with everything from course planning, college planning, uh, workforce planning, or work-based learning planning, and all of those other things I've already mentioned to help students really align their education with where they want to end up. How does the program work and what value does it add with that in mind? So I think the key value really comes from two tenets, one of which I already mentioned, and the second one of which uh, I kind of hinted at. So the first value tenant is the lowering of opportunity cost as it pertains to understanding what is out there. So the way our educational model works, there's an incredibly high opportunity cost of trying things out after high school. You might have to give up a year of your life 
you might have to spend $50,000 on one year of schooling, uh, maybe only $10,000, but still at that price tag, that's hefty. And so there's a very high opportunity cost of exploration once you graduate high school. And what we're trying to do is drastically lower the opportunity cost of that exploration so students can do it quickly and easily, and it has a high degree of accessibility so that there's not as much consequence if students explore the wrong thing or explore something they don't want to end up pursuing. And I think the other thing that it really does and the other big value tenant it has for school systems, as I mentioned in the first answer, is it's really helping them backwards map academic planning. So traditionally, K through 12 schools have had forwards mapped academic planning, meaning they go to kids and say, hey, let's take the PSAT. Oh, hey, you got this score, so let's take the SAT. Now you got this score, so let's look at these caliber of colleges. Okay, now you're applying to these colleges. Let's look at what you want to major in. And the interesting thing about this is you're building this plan without ending or knowing where you want to end up. And so oftentimes you end up in a place that you didn't really want to from the start. And the other interesting thing is only 45% of kids who graduate high school immediately enroll in a four-year degree. 55% either go to a two-year or a technical school or go straight into the workforce. But when you do a forwards map system, there's a lot less to do for those students who are pursuing alternative pathways because there's not as clean of markers or milestones to achieve throughout high school if you want to get an apprenticeship when you graduate or pursue other kind of post-secondary certificate programs. And so those students oftentimes will fall through the cracks in our K-12 system. But every student needs a job. It doesn't matter if you get a PhD or a GED. Your career has to start at some point. You have to have a job at some point. So when you align academic planning, course planning, and K-12 curriculum to career outcomes, you're now increasing the equality and the equity of the system because it's relevant for every single kid in it, instead of only a certain niche of students. And so I think our biggest two value propositions really come from those two tenants. You work with thousands of schools across the country now. Why do you think so many schools have adopted your program? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Uh, in addition to the things that I think I just mentioned, another hypothesis I would offer is being a painkiller. So, you know, our model is to sell the schools and reach students that way. And by the end of this year, we'll cover over a million students each year through that model. But in order to really navigate B2B sales processes and get through the layers it takes to get through to make school district-wide or county-wide sales, you really need to solve institutional problems. You can't just be a vitamin. So our content for students is nice and it increases engagement and it's a really impactful thing for students, but in many veins, it's just a vitamin. It's just a value add. It's a nice to have. But on the back end, we're actually helping schools solve in many situations, statewide compliance requirements around student academic and career planning. And so we're a painkiller for the institution. We're solving a pressing problem that they have to solve and they are required to solve by state requirements and compliance and legislation. And so when you couple the value add from the vitamin with the painkiller for the institution, it creates a really sticky uh, value proposition for your buyer. And it gives you the opportunity to really navigate through those more complex B2B sales processes and onboard schools quickly and grow quickly from there. So I think that's been a big driver of our growth uh, from the school point of view. You talk about engagement being so important, that students learn best when they're enthusiastic about learning and that the research backs that up. Can you talk a little bit about how the program actually works? How, how do you um, logistically, practically get students to be engaged with their future career planning? Great question. So I think the first tenant of that, you know, engagement being everything is almost universally applicable. And the reason I say that is you can have the most powerful product in the world, but if it's not easy to use and if people don't use it, it won't make a difference. You can have the best learning methodology in the world, but if students don't engage with it and consume with it, it has no chance to impact them. And so if you don't get engagement from your audience in anything you do, whether you're a speaker, whether you're selling a tech product, whether you're a teacher, whether you have curriculum, you're never going to impact your audience or your end user if they're not actually consuming it. And especially when you're looking at tech products, you know, if they're not usable and engaging for the audience, then it's never going to have that impact. 
And what I think has been really interesting for me and really in some ways confusing for me is that time and again, the research has shown that text-based content and assessments aren't great at engaging students, specifically on career exploration. Career exploration is typically starting with these kids in middle school or at the latest, the beginning of high school. Yet the research shows that we only retain 10% of what we read. And when we read text, it goes into our short-term memory. While we retain up to 95% of what we consume through visual content, and it goes into our long-term memory. So I've always wondered why, if text isn't retained at a high rate, and it goes into our short-term memory, that's what we're relying on for career exploration when students are doing this years and years ahead of when they're ever going to be making those decisions, meaning one of the most essential factors for engagement and impact is long-term retention. Uh, that's always struck me as really odd and counterintuitive and like no one ever took the time to stop and ask that question. So for us, rather than just kind of copying the existing models in the industry that other providers are doing that really focus on assessments and text-based descriptions of careers, we've really made it a key part of what we do to have students first navigate through interactive video questions with industry professionals that are bite-sized to maximize engagement and interactive career simulation activities that actually force the students to interact with the content and create. And it's sometimes tough because I don't know if you've ever heard the Henry Ford quote where he says, if I asked my users what they wanted, uh, they would have said a faster horse. And a lot of times you have to listen to your users, but sometimes you have to know when your users are wrong. And students will report that they think they learn better through passive learning meaning long-form lectures or long-form videos or just reading things on their own. But the data has shown that active learning actually increases student grades up to an entire letter grade. And so in this situation, I think it's one where we have to throw out the student preference of passive learning and really focus on building content that forces them to interact and that forces them to create that will lead to long-term comprehension and retention. Because for career exploration to be impactful, it needs to stay with the student over a period of years and years because they're doing that exploration way before they're making decisions around their career or even a college major. Can you just talk a little bit about maybe one of the simulations that they go through just to give us a picture of what that looks like? Absolutely. So we partnered with a Fortune 200 company in logistics and warehousing, uh, Performance Food Group. And what we did was we toured their facilities, we interviewed workers at various stages, and they wanted to show the entire life cycle of a logistics career uh, to students through this activity. So students start out by seeing uh, zip or barcodes, I apologize, seeing barcodes on their screen and clicking each barcode to proxy, scanning it into the warehouse. Once they scan it into the warehouse, they'll see the locations of where the boxes would go in the aisles and the rows, and they try to route the most efficient collection uh, order for those boxes as they're going through those aisles and rows based on the zip codes that they, or the barcodes that they scanned in. Then from there, they have to load the boxes onto a truck, and the truck has eight spots to load it onto, and they're given the route of the restaurants that they're going to hit for the delivery. So they have to make sure they load the boxes into the correct spots based on when they're going to be dropping them off to the restaurants. And then lastly, we have, I don't know if you ever played Minecraft, um, but or Minesweeper, whatever it was called, where you click the boxes and they change and things like that. But we kind of have a game like that built at the end where students click boxes to have the truck drive that specific route and they have to hit all of the restaurants, but they try to minimize their delivery time by coordinating the most efficient routes and building those routes for multiple trucks at the same time. So this activity isn't meant to teach them necessarily how to do this or to certify them in getting that job. It's really focused on just that exploration piece. You know, we're not making it an aptitude-based assessment. We're not assessing the students' results. We're just exposing them to the concepts and the work activities that happen within that job and that career path and walking them through some of those layers in a very interactive, gamified way for the students to really better understand what that type of career would be like and what mental models are needed or thought processes are needed for that type of work so they can understand if it's something that they're going to fit well in. Do you have any stories about students you want to share who the program has helped, any individuals? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we've served hundreds and hundreds of thousands of students. And unfortunately, I don't get to have near as personal of a relationship with the students as I would like to. But we have real-time chat support. And we're on a constant basis receiving amazing testimonials and comments for students. Uh, I know one student said something along the lines of, before using this product, I didn't know if I liked the idea of psychology or if I would actually like psychology. So thank you so much for helping me figure that out. And we've had a, a you know, we have a wall of these quotes and comments that students have shared. Uh, and sometimes you'll even see a student on a, a Friday night at 11 p.m., you know, leaving a comment like, this, this platform's amazing. It's helping me figure out what I want to do with my life. Thank you so much. And it's just kind of mind blowing that, look, that doesn't happen all the time. I get kids have better things to do on their weekends than <laughs> use educational software. But even just the fact that it's happening occasionally, I think really validates our goal of making sure we're building something that is engaging students in a way that impact is possible. You started this about five years ago. What's the, been the biggest surprise in the last five years since you started Major Clarity? Yeah, you know, it's a little bit of a cliche of a quote, but uh, one of the things that I've just started saying more and more the more I get into this is the greater your area of light, uh, the greater your circumference of darkness. And I forget who exactly said it, if it was Ben Franklin or Thomas Edison, but someone like that. And I think what's really surprised me is just the more I learn, the more I realize how much I don't know. And just how many layers there are of complexity of, of all of these things. And uh, there's so much complexity and so much analysis that has to go into every side of the spectrum when you're looking at social impact tools, when you're looking at influencing educational policy, when you're looking at ingratiating a product or a service with the school district. And there's just so many challenges uh, that students are facing. There's so many challenges that administrators are facing. There's so many competing viewpoints that there's a lot more uh, to it than I think you realize at first glance. And I think a lot of people will look at, at the educational system and think, well, I got an education. You know, we should just do this or we should just do that. Or I can't believe people have this vantage point. I can't believe people aren't prioritizing this. You know, and, and one example of that is. Does a school district prioritize compliance that allows them to stay in good standing with the state and receive extra funding or the end student experience if they have to make a choice between those two? And idealistically, everyone would say, oh, the end student experience. And that's what I would hope and want too. But at the same time, if that school can't keep its doors open and if that school isn't in good standing and doesn't get funding, then it can't provide any experience to that student. And so I think from the outside, uh, we tend to look at education very idealistically and very theoretically without awareness of the practicalities that exist and how they complicate things and how they make things more challenging. And the more I've gotten into this world, the more I've just realized how many factors and variables there are to weigh and how little I truly know about the entire system, uh, despite being in a role where we're working with thousands of schools. So you're working with thousands of schools, but what is yet to be accomplished that you would like to see in terms of your mission? What what technology or what approach or what would you like to see that you could perhaps plug in to what you're doing that would make the biggest difference? Absolutely. So the thing that we've been building for since day one is our vision tagline that I opened with, right? And that is to help K-12 schools ensure that every student's education leads to a successful career outcome. And for students who are going to get there through a four-year college, that pathway, that marketplace is very built up. It's very mature, right? Students know where to turn to find colleges. They know what things to do to qualify themselves for college, including standardized tests. They know what college is like for the most part. And a lot of students in low-income and low socioeconomic areas or with less resources or support certainly have an information disadvantage. And there's a lot of work happening to try to bring better equity and equality to that process, which is amazing work. But for the most part, that information is accessible. But more importantly, that pathway is seen with prestige in our society. But 32% of kids who graduate high school don't go to post-secondary education. Another 23% go to two-year schools or technical schools. So you have the majority of kids who are graduating high school not pursuing that path, yet that path probably receives, uh, when we talk about post-secondary opportunities, 
80%, if not more, of the attention and of the focus, even though it's for the minority of students. And from the start, we've always wanted to bring greater equality to all of those post-secondary opportunities. A one-year certificate program that leads to a job in medical services is an amazing post-secondary education. A boot camp that leads to a programming job is an amazing post-secondary education experience. An apprenticeship that leads to a strong job with good job security and insurance and benefits uh, after six months is an amazing post-secondary educational experience. Yet, when we say post-secondary education, we by and large just mean four-year colleges. And so I've always had a vision of bringing a greater amount of equity, respect, and prestige to all of those opportunities and creating a better and more seamless connection with K-12 education for all of those opportunities so every student knows where to turn and knows what to do and knows how to pursue their dreams and is given equal dignity within that pursuit. And we absolutely have nothing against four-year college. I loved my college experience, and I think liberal arts education is great for those who want it and those who can't afford it. But it's funny, people will often label me as anti-college just because I want to talk about things equally. And I think that shows you how much bias in our system has existed for four-year college routes. Because if someone comes along and says, you know, hey, I want to just make it clear, I think four-year college is great, but more of our kids who graduate don't go to a four-year college than do, so let's also talk about these other things, people will then kind of pigeonhole that perspective as an anti-college perspective, and it's not at all. And so I think the fact that that happens shows you you know, how little equality there is between those different trajectories. And even if you go to a high school guidance counseling office, they're going to have relations with admissions reps at most of the four-year institutions in the area, but are they going to have relationships at skilled employers for apprenticeship programs and technical schools and certificate programs? It's happening at an increasingly uh, rapid pace as of late. Uh, and I think and hope that Major Clarity has been able to help contribute to that trend. But it still certainly has a long, long way to go. And, you know, I envision a world where there's an equal marketplace for those apprenticeships and technical programs um, as there is for students taking the SAT and then pursuing a four-year uh, school. I mean, colleges are spending billions of dollars a year to recruit kids off of that data, but the employers and institutions at the other end of the spectrum don't even have that opportunity because there's no aggregation system for students who want to pursue those pathways. Apart from major clarity, do you see any other practical solutions that are out there that are trying to achieve what you want to see? Absolutely. I think my favorite one, even potentially over major clarity, but I don't know, that would be tough, is a group called Rooted Schools. And it's a nonprofit school that's very career aligned and has a lot of the same mission and ethos. Uh, it's founded by an amazing, amazing individual named Jonathan Johnson. Uh, I actually cut my teeth in the educational world with him down in New Orleans when I was a fellow at 4.0 Schools Labs, which is an ed tech lab and does a lot of venture studio stuff. And he was starting Rooted Schools. And really what they're focused on is, look, the kids who want to go to college, we're going to help you go to college. The kids who don't, we're going to help you get a high paying uh, job that it has high degree of security immediately upon a graduation that's going to lead to a higher quality of life. And he's really focused on populations that haven't always been served in certain ways. And he's just an absolutely incredible leader. And I think Rooted Schools has an incredible mission. And the reason I would say it might even be my favorite over major clarity is you always have to, to make a decision. Do you want to go wide or do you want to go deep? And we made the decision to go wide and not deep. And I think that was the right decision for us with what we were doing and the insight and expertise we had. And we'll be able to reach millions of lives by going wide, whereas Rooted School made the decision to go deep. And so while it might not scale to the number of students that we can, it has a much more profound and much deeper impact on each of these students' lives individually and is really replacing an entire school model with a lot of the same philosophies that we have at Major Clarity. And so I think, you know, Jonathan Johnson and Rooted Schools is a venture in the industry that I have a ton of respect for. And as Major Clarity continues to succeed more, um, you know, intangibly, but also tangibly and financially, I would love if I were able to be a bigger supporter of that venture and, and get more involved there and maybe even help them expand to Virginia. Uh, right now they're in New Orleans and I think Indianapolis as well. 
um, because I think it's something that really could have a huge impact for society. What trends are you seeing regarding not only the career choices young people are making, but also the reasons behind them? So I think I would have had a different answer for you four or five months ago versus now, um, because I don't know if I've seen a drastic shift over the last four to five years in that trend yet. I think the impact on that trend will be the end result of a lot of the work myself and many other people in the industry are trying to do. But with COVID, I think it's accelerated a lot of those trends greatly, right? Simpson Scarborough did a survey that found 30% of students and families that previously thought they were going to go to four-year institutions after graduation are now reconsidering. And I think what that really has accelerated is the consideration of the alternatives to those traditional career pathways or educational pathways, looking at things like apprenticeship programs, looking at things like gap year programs, looking at things that are more local or more specialized. And I think that's going to be a trend that sticks. You know, I think a lot of the trends that have popped up because of COVID might fizzle out, but I think uh, the open-mindedness to more specialized pathways to a career, whether it's through education or just life experience or work experience, is something that's going to stay around. And one of the reasons I think it's going to stay around is because you're actually seeing colleges try to start embracing this. And uh, it's something I'm happy to dive into a little bit further on. But when you have something that's typically been on the other side of the spectrum from this, actually starting to embrace this and incorporate this and integrate this with their offerings, I think that's a really big validation point that this trend is here to stay. And I think students are going to continue to be asking themselves, what is the most efficient or what is the most immediate path to the career that I want to pursue? rather than kind of taking that slower paced end about journey uh, to try to figure out how to get there eventually. So what specific changes are you seeing that colleges are actually making? Absolutely. So some colleges immediately post-COVID have already started to try to create their own gap year programs, right? And, And that's kind of crazy to think about because even just two years ago, gap years were seen as a big threat to to colleges because it could lead to them never coming back. And I know there was some incorporation with, hey, take a gap year, use it to bolster your application because you gain life experience and then go to those colleges. But there wasn't much being done by colleges to actually make that a formal part of their offering. And so I think how quickly you've seen colleges start to put those programs together and offer those types of things is is pretty incredible. And another trend that's been happening over the last year or two, and I think is definitely going to continue happening is the backwards mapping of a college degree. So if you look at it, if you go to a four-year college and and do three years, you could walk away with nothing, right? And that's pretty insane. That's pretty ridiculous (laughs) if you think about it, especially when there are shorter versions of education that can lead to credentials or degrees that don't require four years. And BYU, as well as many other institutions, have started looking at how they can sequence their programs. So for instance, it's still going to be a four years bachelor program, but if you left after the first year, you would walk away with a certificate in X study or X program. And if you left after two years, you would walk away with an associate's degree. And if you stick it out the whole four years, then you would walk away with your bachelor's degree. And that's really something that I think is is much more preferable for society because it's not an all or nothing model. You know, education's been an all or nothing model. Spend a hundred grand, get a bachelor's degree, spend four to five years, and then you're set. But if you don't make it those four or five years, you get nothing, you know, too bad, sorry. And when you look at the numbers on student matriculation, it's pretty atrocious. Um, I haven't looked them up as recently, so I used to know the percentages down to the exact decimal, but uh, I have the rough numbers now. And the rough numbers are only that about 60% of students are graduating at four-year institutions within six years of going. So that means, you know, we're having 40% of kids who go to a four-year institution six years later don't have a degree. Then when you factor in that 43% of students who graduate are underemployed, meaning they're getting a job that didn't require that college degree, that means only 60% of students are getting employment on target with the education they just got. 
So if only 60% graduate and only 60% of graduates are getting jobs that require a college degree, you're looking at 35 to 40% of people who that bachelor's degree is actually working for. And people always quote, oh, if you get a bachelor's degree, you have XYZ higher lifetime earnings than if you don't. And that's why you need to get a bachelor's degree. But you have to weight that by the amount of time it actually ends up being successful. Only two out of five kids who go to college are going to end up walking away with a degree and a job that required that degree in six years, not even four years. So when you have two thirds of kids who the system isn't working for, we need to figure out how to make sure they're still getting value, even if they don't make it all the way through that system, even if they don't get it all the way across that finish line. And so I'm very bullish on this trend. I think uh, it's a way for colleges to maintain their existing models and bachelor programs that go as deep and comprehensive as they do and still have liberal arts components, while also making sure students have more value if they drop off at any point. And it's also latching onto that trend of specialization and, and a higher degree of efficiency, uh, which I think is the same trend that has fueled the growth of boot camps and certificate programs across the country. And so I think it's a really uh, interesting thing for colleges to embrace, and I'm very bullish on that. And I think you're going to see a big increase in the number of colleges that are structuring their programs this way over the next five years. So you're bullish on that. You said BYU already is doing that. What are the barriers to getting other colleges to do the same thing? You know, I always try to say, know what you know and know what you don't know. Uh, I don't work with a ton of higher ed institutions, so I don't know if I would really have a ton of value to offer on the insight of the barriers other than the generic ones, right? As an outside perspective, um, they're large, large enterprises and changing large enterprises that have done something a certain way for a long time is a very difficult task. There's a lot of programming that needs to be reorganized. They have to backwards map their curriculum. They have to restructure their offerings. And that's a lot of work. So, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, challenge there. And, and it's certainly not without its challenges and its obstacles. And I think you're dealing with institutions that haven't always been the quickest to move. But that said, I'm certainly not an expert in higher education. So I, I wouldn't profess to know exactly what's going to hold them back from doing that. But from the perspective of, you know, seeing what thousands of K through 12 administrators and hundreds of thousands of K through 12 students and families are consuming and exploring and looking at the data for how our higher educational system has worked and yielded results. That's where my bullishness on that concept comes from. You mentioned that a lot of people are changing their minds about four-year colleges through, through what's happening with COVID. Are you seeing school districts responding to that? Yeah, you know, I think we were already starting to see school districts respond to this uh, before COVID, but I certainly think it's going to accelerate those trends, right? Uh, career alignment and sorry, career alignment and career readiness have been increasingly adopted trends in the K through 12 space. And if you want to look at some of the tangible things that are showing this, work-based learning has been picking up a huge amount of traction within the K through 12 educational space. Everyone's talking about work-based learning and how they can integrate it with their core offerings. And many states are even passing requirements around students needing work-based learning experiences. And for any listeners who might not be familiar with work-based learning, it's pretty much what it sounds like. It's opportunities, whether it's an apprenticeship, an internship, a job shadow experience, an employer presentation or speaker day, uh, where students are getting exposure to work environments and tangible applications of career pathways or the things they're learning, whether that might be a doctor that requires a ton of education or a job that doesn't require any post-secondary education. Um, both fields alike are considered work-based learning, but it's really just meant to focus on exposing students to the more practical areas of those future career opportunities and helping them use those opportunities and practicalities to take away more tangible learnings whether it's through internships or even just speaking with business owners or professionals. Um, and as I said, that's been really rapidly accelerating within the K through 12 space and is something uh, that we've been getting into and helping more and more of our partners with as well. Another, you know, kind of marker showing the trend of that is just looking at individual learning plan requirements. Uh, 35 of 50 states already have mandated individual learning plans. And the vast majority of these learning plans have students have to fill out a 
area or a pathway or a cluster of career interests that they intend to pursue. Even if they want to go to college, they're still asking these students in middle school and high school to start to identify these career pathways that they want to be pursuing. And, you know, there are a bunch of other data points and trends and policies in place that are pointing to this trend. But I think it was happening even before COVID. And I think after COVID, it's going to happen at an even faster pace because you just look at the common sense angle of it. Families are going to be more financially constrained and people are rapidly reconsidering higher education for a variety of reasons and making sure there's an ROI of the educational pursuits uh, that students are pursuing is going to be an even higher degree of priority for both families, but school systems. And so I think these trends are definitely going to continue. And I think COVID is accelerating them, but they were also happening before any of this got started. You mentioned standardized tests and you've mentioned academic credentials a little bit. What is your attitude towards standardized tests and academic credentials? You mentioned this sort of uh, sequencing through colleges Do you see any other changes that might come with credentialing? And what are the challenges with that? So with standardized tests, you know, I think it's really interesting because the industry as a whole has a lot of gripes with standardized tests, and rightfully so. The greatest predictor of your SAT score is family income or socioeconomic status. And obviously, that's not good, right? If we're using that to measure college acceptance, that's a very discouraging fact, and it's not going to lead to a more equitable system. But you have to remember why standardized tests came about. They came about because uh, in order to do anything at mass, in mass, you need to really be able to streamline things. And you need things to be comparable across states and across districts that might not always be perfectly comparable. And that standardization is what led to, in a large part, the proliferation of college growth and and colleges marketing to students because it created that system for them to be able to do that. And so as someone who believes we need to see a proliferation of the programs on the other side of the spectrum, that's equal to the proliferation we've seen in college. So they're both on equal footing. I do see the value in trying to figure out, well, how could we standardize some sort of measurement or some sort of assessment or some sort of test that would allow all of the employers interested in making apprenticeship hires? and all of the technical institutes interested in kids who want to pursue a technical degree to engage with that many students at the same degree of scale that the SAT and the ACT has have allowed colleges to do for decades. And so I think there is value that can come from standardization, but it's also very high risk because if the standardization isn't equitable, then it proliferates those inequities. And in the case of the SAT, as I said, its biggest corollary factor is family income and socioeconomic status, which is not what you want to see. And so I think one of the ways that that could come about is through further credentialing. You know, credentials to anyone who pays attention to education uh, is, is not an unfamiliar concept. It's receiving a lot of buzz. But I think that's one of the things that rightfully is receiving a lot of buzz. I think if we can get to a place as a society where we're starting to assign universal value, or at least near universal value, to micro-credentials in soft skills, in career pathways, in other areas of life, that's going to really benefit learners and really benefit our students. Because, you know, if they go to high school in North Carolina and earn a credential or a micro-credential in general employability skills, or in, you know, a welding pathway or an advanced manufacturing pathway, and then their family moves to California, that micro-credential still holds value and still holds merit for the employers or the technical institutes in those regions. And that's what the SAT has done, right? The SAT has held merit for a student, whether that college is in California or New York or Florida or wherever else. And obviously, a lot of colleges are moving away from requiring the SAT due to its flaws and the ACT due to its flaws. And, And I completely agree with those assessments. But I also see the fact that if we can come up with something else that has more standardized value and is more equitable and is still kind of universally acceptable across the country, or you have those institutions and those employers at least mutually assigning value there, that's a huge value proposition for our students and for our you know future workforce. And I think it's going to be something that does a lot of good for society. And then I also think you're just seeing people, as we've talked about, have a greater desire for more specialized education. You know, if if your family can afford it 
and you really want it, liberal arts education is an amazing, amazing experience. And I have nothing against that. I had a liberal arts degree uh, and a liberal arts educational experience. But for a lot of families, it's a luxury they can't afford. And so they want more specialized, more direct pathways to the careers that they want to pursue without having to pay for all these things that they don't want. You know, it's a la carte versus forcing you to pay $40 for the buffet when you're only going to eat one thing on the buffet that might only cost $15. And I think micro-credentials are just another way to continue that trend towards creating more specialized educational programs um, that can be a little more a la carte and help offer people a more efficient pathway into career opportunities. So you've mentioned the career planning that happens sooner and sooner, and that's what you do uh, in K-12 schools. You mentioned the changes that colleges are making, and you mentioned credentials and how those are going to change in the future. What other changes are going to be coming to education as a, as a broad thing? And what does the future of education look like that you haven't mentioned? Yeah, before I even try to jump into that, I'll throw out the caveat that, you know, I have no idea. I'm just as excited to see what the future of education looks like as most people, I think, are, even though I work in it and live and breathe it 24-7. And I think that gets back to what I stated earlier on the podcast, which is, you know, the greater your area of light, the greater your circumference of darkness. And so being immersed in this world, I've just seen how much there is to education that I have no clue about. And I wouldn't even profess to be an expert on in the slightest. That said, I think a lot of the things that we've talked about today are going to be a part of it. I don't know exactly what the future of education is going to look like, but I think you're going to see a greater emphasis on uh, alternatives to just a four-year college in regards to the respect or prestige they're getting. They already exist, and a lot of students are already doing them, but they're not necessarily given that same level of respect or, or seen as an equally valuable alternative or equally valuable pathway. I think you're going to see a rise in credentialing. I think you're going to see a rise in certificate programs. I think you're going to see a rise in compartmentalizing and sequencing educational offerings, um, both from higher ed institutions and from others. You know, I think you're going to see a rise in, in boot camps and things like that on the same note as all of this other stuff we've talked about. And then I also see you're going to think you're going to continue to see a lot of innovation on the financing of education. I think ISAs have been one of the first big steps, um, income share agreements, into figuring out how to alternatively finance education. But I still think there's going to be a lot of evolution in that world and in that market. And I think um, we're going to realize problems that we couldn't have realized without ISAs growing very quickly. Uh, And then we're going to probably try to fix and adapt and adjust those problems and continue to iterate on that. But I think the model of having to have students pay tens of thousands of dollars upfront for an education without knowing what the ROI is going to be is going to continue to become a harder thing to sell to consumers and to families. And so I think looking at financing models that have uh, more shared risk and more shared upside across both the institution and the end user or the student is going to be something that continues to pick up. And I think all of those things are going to be elements of what the future of education looks like. But as to the kind of final picture of what exactly it's going to look like, I would say I have no idea, but I'm, I'm very excited to find out. You're an education entrepreneur. What opportunities are there right now for other education entrepreneurs? If you started another business today, what would you do? Yeah, if I started another business, I actually talked about this with my dad and he was like, you should quit this business and go start this other one because I think that's an even better idea. And I was like, yeah, but the idea is 10% of it, 90% is execution. So, you know, I could come up with new ideas and quit and start them all day long and, and never get anywhere. But one of the things I've realized in education is that at the core of a lot of our problems are uh, behavioral things, right? If a student's not fed, if, uh, you know, a family's not taken care of, if a student's not at school, and if a student isn't open to receiving the teaching, it doesn't matter how great of tech you build. It doesn't matter how great of curriculum you build. It doesn't matter, you know, how much research you do into your assessments. You're probably not really going to see an impact on that student. And that kind of gets back to, um, you know, something I learned when I was first working in social work a little bit. And you see so many of these students who have just so many challenges going on in their home lives. And you ask yourself, you know, how, how are they expected to even be able to learn? Like, 
what could I even do curriculum or product wise that would get them to learn? And a lot of times the answer is nothing. And that's kind of where our whole idea of if you can't engage them and engagement is everything, because if you can't engage them, it doesn't matter how great your product offering is. And so if I were to start something else, or if I were to help somebody start something else, I would love to see somebody start this and I would help them in every way that I possibly can. Uh, I've thought there's a huge opportunity to try to align providing for one's family with some of those core tenants. And so what I mean by that is um, a lot of families are in low socioeconomic situations and, and the students trying to help put food on the table or help take care of their brother or their sister or help um, you know, with things that are more pressing than what we think they need to be focused on, like their homework assignment. And so if there was a way to build a system that would track a student's attendance, would track a student's behavior, and would track a student's completion of materials. So it wouldn't be, did you get an A, but it's, are you trying? Are you improving? And, and you could track all of that from the data that schools have. And if students hit a certain level or achieve a certain baseline, then donors would fund maybe groceries for that student's family, or donors would fund you know, the power bill for that student's family that month. Not only would it start to alleviate some of those greater uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs concerns that that student has and is facing, but it would, align, it would kind of put everybody's alignment on the same page because now the way to do that is through their education and through their schooling. And so it is the priority to them instead of it being an afterthought. And, and you're really creating that equal alignment and you're also building that foundation so that the more effective curriculum or tech tools or whatever else is gonna have a higher degree of impact because that student's showing up, that student's focused, that student's fed, and that student's Maslow's hierarchy of needs are, are being taken care of before you even get to some of those later stage needs. Um, and so that's something I, I really think could have a tremendous amount of impact in the world. And if, if somebody wanted to go start it, I would, not that I can do a ton, but I would do everything I could to help them because I just want to see it exist. And uh, I think it's something that's really needed uh, in our society. Um, but, you know, I got to execute on my vision first. And, and I also think my vision has a pretty big opportunity to make a, a large impact and change a lot of lives. So I'm very excited about what we're doing. But that is one idea that I've always been chewing on for the last couple of years and, and really wished somebody would run with and, and kind of make happen. Any other opportunities out there for educational entrepreneurs? I mean, so many, you know, I, I, I wouldn't profess to know all of them. Uh, I got started in this kind of accidentally by my own life journey and then just showing up cold at schools and talking to people. And so, you know, we've all had an education. We've all seen pros and cons and ups and downs. And I think starting with your personal experience and then validating it through hundreds and thousands of conversations with educators or students uh, is going to unearth way more opportunities than I would ever be able to unearth. But there, there are certainly a lot of opportunities and, and a lot of spaces where education could use some innovation. What resources exist for people to read more about some of the things you've spoken about today? Absolutely. So I think there are a ton of them. And unfortunately, a lot of the resources I've used or consumed have been more ad hoc. So they're not necessarily like, oh, I go to this blog every day and check this, but it's just articles I find or that get sent to me or books that get sent to me and, and shared with me. Um, but I think a great place to start is finding people in education that you respect and asking them what they would read or what they would dive into. Uh, my educational journey and discovery and learning really began at 4.0 schools, which was really formative for me. And the CEO assigned a reading list to all of the fellows. And so I was tasked with reading Up From Slavery, which was Booker T. Washington's uh, autobiography, and Shop Class as Soulcraft, which was a really interesting book uh, about a guy who had a PhD and, and ran or helped run or worked at a think tank and then left it to become a mechanic and just talked about the intellectual and philosophical journey of that and why he did that. And then a couple other educational books as well. And those were really foundational for me and a lot of the beliefs and philosophies I have. I actually think Booker T. Washington was really the original inventor of most of the ideas that we see in career and technical education nowadays and has been a huge inspiration for major clarity. And so just going to people who have been there and done that and, and been around for a while and asking them, telling them what you're passionate about, and then asking them for those book recommendations, I think is a great first step. So they knew I wanted to help people figure out what to do with their life and then gave me some book recommendations related to 
uh, educational discovery of passion related to career pathing, related to career and technical education. Um, but there's so many amazing books out there. You know, it'd be hard for me to just recommend one, but those were two of the ones that were really influential in my journey. Joe, is there anything you want to leave our listeners with as we end today? You know, one thing that I think would be valuable maybe, so I guess there is one thing is, you know, if you are interested in these opportunities or want to make a difference in education, one thing I try to remind my team constantly is um, done is better than perfect, right? And even if you look at the world's most successful companies, Amazon has a 70% rule where Jeff Bezos wants his management team to act on 70% confidence because it's a net loss to try to get to 100% confidence. And so we never have all the answers. I certainly don't. I don't know how to fix everything in education and, and I'm certainly not perfect and I'm learning every day and I've made so many mistakes in the running and the building of major clarity, but you can never make a difference. You can never make an impact if you don't start somewhere. And so I think starting is a lot more important than trying to have the perfect answer to everything or trying to overanalyze everything. Um, and so if anyone out there is interested in just trying to make their mark on education or, or you know, do something or start something, I would say just get started. And even if it's not building anything, but it's just learning about these things, you know, there's no perfect book to read. Just get started on reading books. There's no perfect way to solve X problem. Just get started and learn from it. Um, so whatever it is, I would just challenge the listeners to try to just get started and see where it goes from there. Joe Bell Sterling, it's been a great conversation. Really appreciate you having, having you on the show. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Peter. Always love to chat education. Uh, I live, breathe, and eat and sleep it. So it's, it's fun for me and appreciate the chance to chat with you today. My guest today was Joe Bell Sterling. If you want to find out more about Joe or about Major Clarity, go to majorclarity.com. Thanks for listening. Subscribe, tell your friends. See you next time.